Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Many of us tend to think of an addict as someone who compulsively abuses things like alcohol, drugs, or sex. But today, most of us have an imbalanced attachment to something or the other and are caught up in an endless pursuit of pleasure and dopamine hits. It could be social media or Netflix, food or shopping, or maybe it is validation from others, or we're hooked to the sensationalist news cycle. And if we're honest to ourselves, we often don't feel good at all and feel trapped in this compulsive overconsumption. My guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke, a psychiatrist working at Stanford University. She is the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University School of Medicine and is a psychiatrist expert in treating addictions of all kinds, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, video games, gambling, food, and medication. In her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, she dives deep into the biology and psychology of why we become addicted to certain behaviors and substances and the role dopamine plays in creating addictions and how we can overcome them. Dr. Lemke also explains the connection between pleasure and pain and why it is so important to keep a balance in order to be healthy mentally and physically. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for being with us today on the Superhumanize podcast. Uh, we have you in your office at Stanford. I know you are a very busy woman, so it is an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Anna, in your book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, you address a really important issue. Now, before we go any further, for those people in the audience who may not be that well acquainted with what it is, could you explain to us what is dopamine why is it so important? And what does it cause in the body? So dopamine is a chemical in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are molecules that bridge that gap between neurons end to end because neurons don't actually touch. There's a little space between them called the synapse. And, and neurotransmitters are what allow those neurons to communicate across the synapse. Dopamine is very important for the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it's probably the most important one. And the final common pathway for any reinforcing or addictive substance. The process of becoming addicted is one that involves fluctuations in dopamine levels. And I'm happy to talk about that if you want me to go further, but that's the basics of dopamine. Dopamine is also interestingly very involved in motion, in locomotion. When people um, get Parkinson's disease, it's due to a depletion 
of dopamine in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra. But one of the things that I think is interesting is if you look at even very primitive animals like primitive nematodes or worms, what you'll see is that they will release dopamine in response to food in the environment. And that also then enables them locomoting or moving uh, toward that food source. So it's probably not a coincidence that movement and motivation are both mediated by dopamine. That is fascinating, Anna. I have Parkinson's in my family. So it's, yeah, it's obviously a subject matter that I'm very much interested in. And what you've just shared about the nematodes, that that's a correlation I was not aware of. It makes total sense, even to a layperson such as myself. So a slight footnote to that that you might be interested in, given that, is that some of the medications that we use to treat uh, Parkinson's, things like L-DOPA, which are a precursor of dopamine that crosses the blood-brain barrier, actually can cause addiction in people who never had addiction before. Hmm. I have a side question for you. So uh, you mentioned L-DOPA. There's a, a plant, it's called velvet bean or mucuna prurians, and mm. it contains in nature, it contains, it's one of the highest levels of L-DOPA. So a lot of people mm. in the health and wellness uh, niche, they actually like to add to their smoothies. It makes them feel good. It helps them focus. Is there any danger to once in a while using that or would it be a problem? I have no idea. I have never heard of that. So that's really interesting for me. What was it called again? It's a mucuna pruriens, also known as the velvet bean, and it contains very high levels in the plant world, L-DOPA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. Thank you for letting me know. I will look into that. And I would be very curious on your input, if you don't mind uh, circling back yeah. to me. Yeah. In, in the first um, chapter of your book, you talk about our masturbation machines, things like drugs and alcohol. I'd like for you to delve a little bit further into that and also explain to us why there are certain things that are more addictive than others. So the, the reason that opening chapter is called our masturbation machines is because I specifically talk about a patient of mine who developed a very severe pornography and sex addiction and actually built his own masturbation machine. He's a scientist. But I also think that his experience is an apt metaphor for these things that we now uh, are connected to on an everyday basis, meaning our smart. They're kinds of kind of machine too that we are now using to auto-regulate, auto-eroticize, auto-soothe. And in many ways, we are no longer turning to each other in order to meet our basic physical and emotional needs, which I think is worth observing. And also, in my opinion, concerning because we are tribal creatures and we do need each other. And those bonds, I think most people would agree are fundamental to wellness. And so if we create devices that ultimately disrupt those connections, that's a, a, going to be a dangerous device. Let me also add that these devices can be wonderful ways to enhance or maintain connections. So it's not all bad, but we have to be really thoughtful about how we use them. So getting back to your question, sir, um, on the addictive potential of, of different substances, what, what you have to keep in mind there is the interface between our own unique individual wiring 
which makes one drug or behavior reinforcing versus another. So what's reinforcing for you may not be for me and vice versa. Having said that, intoxicants that have been around for millions of years are generally reinforcing to many people. And so hence their persistence across generations, things like alcohol, cannabis, opioids. Of course, now we have new drugs that never even existed before, like online pornography, online gambling, video games. So it's this interface between the inherent addictive potential of that substance, but then our own unique wiring and what we personally find reinforcing. And with regards to this massive dopamine release that occurs when we engage in addictive behaviors or actually intaking substances that cause this, what is so problematic about that? In order to understand why that's problematic, it's important to understand some basic neuroscience of pleasure and pain. And one of the discoveries in the past 100 years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located, meaning that the same parts of the brain that process the experience of pleasure also process the experience of pain and pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we experience pleasure, balance tips one way, when we experience pain, it tips the other. One of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And our brains will work very hard to adapt to external and internal stimuli in order to restore a level balance or restore homeostasis. And the way that the brain does that when it comes to pleasure and pain is not just by bringing it back to level, but actually tipping it an equal and opposite amount uh, in into the other direction before restoring a level balance. So to just bring that back into, down to human terms, if I eat a piece of chocolate, which I like, I get a little release of dopamine, the pleasure neurotransmitter in my brain's reward pathway, and my balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than I get these little adaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance, not just bringing it level again, but tipping it an equal amount to the side of pain. And that is that moment of wanting a second piece of chocolate. Now, if I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored. But if I don't wait and I continue to consume large amounts of chocolate over days to weeks to months to years, I eventually end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of my balance that I'm chronically tipped now to the side of pain, which means that I need a whole lot of chocolate and maybe chocolate injected with alcohol or chocolate with a little bit of cocaine in it in order to get any kind of pleasure response. And I'm needing to eat chocolate not to feel good, but just to feel normal. And here's really important. When I'm not eating chocolate, I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving or intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And nothing else is interesting. So that's a really key point that my focus and my interest and my pleasures really narrow down to that drug of choice, in my case, chocolate and the other things in my life that I used to enjoy no longer become enjoyable, but not because they've inherently changed in some way, but because my sense of their positive valence has changed because my dopamine is in a deficit state. I've downregulated my own dopamine and my own dopamine receptors mm -hmm. as a way of compensating. And just to go off on a tiny little tangent, during my research, I read that you were, or maybe still are, if I, <laughs> addicted to romance novels. Mm -hmm. 
How does, was that in jest or do you think there was a real kind of an addiction in a sense also involved because of the dopamine release by reading? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I decided to share that with readers in parallel with sharing the story of my patient who created the masturbation machine as a way of just creating that continuum across addiction that basically, and I think I really was addicted. It was not nearly as severe as my patient, but it was on that same continuum. Many of the behaviors and physiologic consequences that I experienced were very similar to what he was going through. For example, I experienced tolerance. I needed more and more graphic novels in order to get the same effect. I experienced physiologic withdrawal. When I gave it up for a month, I actually had all of those universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, irritability, especially insomnia, because I would use the novel as a way to fall asleep. And I had a lot of difficulty falling asleep. I had the classic three C's of addiction, control, compulsion, and consequences. I would plan to just read until 10 or 11 and I'd be up till two in the morning. I had compulsive use where there was a level of automaticity and also a narrowing of my pleasure. It was the only thing that I enjoyed. And I stopped taking pleasure in things that were really good in my life, my kids, my husband, my work. And then of course, consequences. For me, the main consequence was twofold, that I lost sleep because I would stay up very late at night and then I was tired the next day and couldn't really be present or energized. And then the other consequence was, again, importantly, that other things became less interesting to me, even those, even though those things hadn't inherently changed. What had changed was my pleasure pain balance so that they, those things seemed less interesting. Yes, I really did become addicted. It happened over the course of a couple of years. I did what I recommend to my patients. I gave it up for 30 days. 30 days is just about the minimum amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways and also to be able to look back and see true cause and effect. And then I decided I wanted to go back to using in moderation. And I did go back to using and I had a terrible binge episode where I stayed up all night, two nights in a row. And so then I decided to give it up for a whole year. And since that time, I feel like I've had a more permanent restoration of my reward pathways. I will occasionally go back now and try to get pleasure from a romance novel. But interestingly, it doesn't really work for me anymore, which is mm -hmm. also something I hear from patients that Part of what happens is their drug, that old friend turns on them and doesn't do what it used to do. And in fact, can make them feel bad, uh, where, whereas it used to feel good. So that's what can happen when we burn out those neural circuits or when we press on that pleasure side so much that we essentially enter this dopamine deficit state. That is truly interesting. And I love that you shared that fact about yourself. It's actually something I can relate to very well. I, I Romance novels are fabulous for escapism. And I used to read way more two and a half years ago, also going deep into the night and all the effects, the symptoms that you describe, I can completely relate to. So it's very interesting to see what kind of different things all can become addictive to us. And you mentioned before all the, the lack of getting enough of whatever this addictive substance or behavior is can cause anxiety, depression. We're seeing such a rise of all of that depressed 
depression, anxiety, suicide, especially in our Western nations. So it is something related to what you call the dopamine deficit state. Yeah. What can we actually do once we're in that state to help heal this dopamine deficiency or this imbalance in our system? Well, I think the first thing is just to, you know, the central hypothesis of dopamine nation is that the reason that we're seeing rising rates of depression, anxiety, insomnia, physical mm -hmm. body pain the world over, especially in rich nations, is precisely because we are bombarding our reward pathways with too much dopamine. And that in order to compensate, our, for all of that dopamine, our bodies are down-regulating our own endogenous production of dopamine, as well as our endocannabinoid, endo-opioid, serotonin, norepinephrine systems. So the first thing that we need to do is actually to cut out those feel-good drugs and behaviors from our lives. That's so it, hard. Yeah, it's really hard because what I'm saying is, okay, you feel bad. So now what you need to do is do something that in the short term will actually make you feel worse. Because when you think about that balance, when we take something off the pleasure side, we're immediately going to slam down to the side of pain and be in withdrawal. But that is absolutely key and the starting place to get our bodies to start to regenerate our own endogenous feel-good hormones. Because slowly over time, what happens is those neuroadaptation gremlins hop off and homeostasis is eventually restored, assuming we have enough brain plasticity to do that. And most of us do. There are some people with very severe addiction who may not be able to restore homeostasis. And for those individuals, certain medications may be um, indicated and also necessary. But for most of us, if we just stop doing that thing and also don't then switch it for some other drug. So you don't want to give up cannabis and then switch to nicotine or give up romance novels and switch to Netflix binges. Cause all of that is just bombarding the dopamine reward pathway. It really requires a form of asceticism for a period of time in order to reset reward pathways. The other thing that we can do to help in that period is to actually press on the pain side of the balance, because when we do things that are challenging or painful, then our brain adapts in the opposite direction, resets our pleasure set point to the side of pleasure. <laughs> so that's why I highly recommend like things like exercise, ice cold water baths, or even just exposing ourselves to anxiety provoking or challenging situations or projects, um, because all of that results again in creating more resilience to helping us build up mental calluses and upregulating our own endogenous uh, hormones uh, and neurotransmitters. I love that you mentioned ice cold baths. This is a uh, modality that's been used by, for example, somebody like Wim Hof, AKA the Iceman for many years. And he's worked together with scientists all across the world who've actually looked at what it does to the body. He's also uses it to help people, whether it's physical ailments or things like anxiety. And it's a very simple, easy and cheap way to try just in the morning. I don't consider it fun, but however, when you do get into the shower in the morning, <laughs> you take this ice cold shower, right. you just feel better physically mm -hmm. and emotionally. And friends of mine also report they, you can also go fancy and go into these cryo saunas, these cold chambers that they have in fancy uh, spas all over LA and other bigger cities in the US and now also Europe. And people experience this just this sense of well-being and being this burden lifted off of them. However, just a cold shower will 
also do it. You talked about pain and also that we have to go through this period of pain in order for our bodies to be able to reset culture. I think we've been taught to uh, avoid and suppress so-called negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Should we embrace pain? Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. Not only are we exposed to nearly infinite feel good substances and behaviors, but we're also very insulated from pain. And even from physical phenomenon, we're very disembodied living in our heads, not connected to our bodies. If you look again at the way that pleasure and pain are processed and co-located in the brain and the way that they complement each other, what we know from neuroscience and what we've learned experientially is that when we allow ourselves to tolerate something that's painful, or it just happens to us. Very often the result, although it's very horrible in the moment, is that afterwards we feel better. And by the way, this is something that's been observed for thousands of years. So Socrates and Plato observed this and, and even wrote about it. For example, after a period of illness, people often have a rebound feeling of well-being or euphoria right in the aftermath of illness. It's been known for a long time that when people engage in vigorous physical exercise, afterward, they feel an enhanced sense of well-being. And again, that's basic, you know, neurobiology, that when you are experiencing a painful physical or emotional stimulus, your body will compensate by upregulating its own endogenous healing mechanisms in an effort, again, to restore level balance or return to homeostasis, which is the overriding biological drive. Yes, and which is also why a lot of people who are in the biohacking realm or also in extending not only lifespan but health span are big proponents of what they call hormesis, these uh, where you on purpose actually subject your body to certain safe stresses, whether it's cold therapy, we just spoke about that, uh, or hot therapy or vigorous exercise or other things like that, because it actually activates your, your body's survival mechanism and also the longevity genes for twins and all that good stuff. So our the default setting of our culture to always be in our comfort zone and not to move out of it actually is shortening our lives and also lessening our health. That's right. 70% of global deaths are due to modifiable risk factors like poor diet, inactivity, and smoking. So we really have reached a tipping point where the primary cause of death and morbidity today is our own behaviors and the creation of this ecosystem of overabundance and overconsumption. And what actually happens to the brain when we pursue happiness and avoid pain? If you think about, again, this pleasure-pain balance, as long as we continue to just press on the pleasure side of the balance, our brain will inherently want to correct to restore homeostasis. And again, it does that by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pleasure, to the pain, I mean, to the side of pain. So what we get is, again, a downregulation of our own dopamine production, our own dopamine transmission. We go into this dopamine deficit state, which is essentially akin to a clinical depression. And that's the paradox of all of this, that in order to feel good, we have to avoid things that make us feel too good. And we have to instead pursue and embrace things that in the immediate moment, may give us pain, but the aftermath of which is to give us this sense of enduring well-being.
Mm -hmm. And so the one aspect is the uh, dopamine deficiency, the state that happens when we only pursue pleasure. Are there also changes within the wiring of our brain when we overindulge? Yeah, certainly the, so the limbic structures and the brain's reward pathway are, are located in the lower parts of the brain, which are also the oldest parts of the brain and the phylogenetically conserved parts of our brain, which are similar which have been similar and unchanged for millions of years and across species. Then we have our big frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, which is our future planning, storytelling, delayed gratification part of our brain. And when things are going well, then the prefrontal cortex and the reward pathway in the lower part of the brain are communicating clearly with each other. And the prefrontal cortex is helping to modulate that behavior. And we're also learning um, coping strategies and mechanisms to adapt to our environment, to tolerate painful stimuli, to delay gratification. But what happens is if we're just responding to short-term immediate rewards, we essentially sever that prefrontal cortex from talking to those lower uh, brain areas. And then we're just living out of our lizard brain. And that is not a good place to be. Whereas when we're, we're delaying gratification, we're considering consequences, then we're stimulating that prefrontal cortex, which is ultimately um, makes for better decisions. And, and talking about lizard brain for myself, that brings up just also look, you look at this period of divisiveness that we've been going through, not just here in the United States, I see in a lot of European countries as well, Latin American countries, but where people are just so easily triggered and they react versus respond and social media, which can cause mob type frenzies. Is that related in some way to our overindulgence in dopamine? Yeah. So I think there's what we end up with a sort of a feed forward loop where being online I mean, that in and of itself is a reinforcing behavior, probably releases an enormous amount of dope in our reward pathway. We are also wired to connect. So when we're having the same emotion as another person at the same time, that releases dopamine, that's highly reinforcing. And if you add to that, not one other person, but tens of thousands or millions of other people, you get this herd mentality that's highly reinforcing because you're all having the same emotion at the same time. So essentially what happens is what's fundamentally, what was fundamentally an adaptive trait, that is our desire to connect with other human beings, becomes drugified and becomes maladaptive because it becomes just about chasing dopamine, but trying to get that next hit, trying to get more than you got before so you can recreate uh, that feeling. And then of course, once we're living in that kind of lizard brain or space of wanting to get more dopamine, we progressively lose the ability to delay gratification. We're just all about immediate rewards. We want the answer right away. We want the reaction right away. And most of the world's problems today are highly complicated and they're not, there isn't an easy answer that we're going to come up with. So it's going to require us to delay gratification, to live in that gray space of nuance, to debate in a way that's not about I win or you win or whatever, but it's more about complex problem solving. But the medium itself doesn't actually, isn't actually conducive to that way of thinking because the medium itself, the screen itself, the online medium is so highly reinforcing that people just get in limbic brain and they're not 
really engaging their prefrontal cortex. And when we're in that state, when we are basically operating from our lizard brain, I feel that's also when we so easily can fall prey to as individuals, but also as large parts of societies. If you want to look and not to go into politics too much, but that's when you can fall prey to populists, to the types of people who offer very simple air quote solutions to very complex problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And there are so many people who also constantly watch the news and, uh, and frankly are addicted to the news. And one of the questions that's come up, which I think is a good one, is mostly the news seems like it's bad. So why would that be addictive? But the interesting thing about dopamine is that dopamine is very sensitive to novelty and to novel stimuli, even if those stimuli are aversive. So it's very easy to get addicted to the news because the news is all about, first of all, high potency emotions, even outrage. It's very visual. So the medium itself delivers these images that are potent and reinforcing. And then of course, it's constantly novel. It's like a little bit of new information on what you knew before. And and that's a huge reinforcer uh, of dopamine because dopamine is about saliency. It's about tracking the environment. It's about that pleasure pain balance and trying to be sensitive to new stimuli in the environment and respond to them in an immediate and resilient way, which gets hijacked if we're constantly ingesting these feel good, highly potent, highly dopaminergic behaviors and substances, which is why even the news, even though it's not on the face of it about feeling good, it does have a reinforcing and addictive quality as well. Mm. And this kind of a reaction, of course, in times long past make total sense because they would help us survive by being really attuned to what's happening to our environment. But to constantly be in that state, like you said, to be hijacked by the news just puts us in a state where we're not really rational anymore. And another thing that you said that is so interesting, we as human beings, it it gives us pleasure to feel the same emotions as the rest of the group, which also makes total sense because being part of a group, it helps to guarantee our survival. But it becomes really dangerous when we're in that. One thing is you're in a stadium and the national anthem gets sung and that's a pleasurable emotion. Or Christmas, let's say if you're Christian and hymns are sung just for as one example can be a multitude of other things that can be very benign. But I also know I've interviewed a couple of, had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of very accomplished former special operations uh, forces military personnel. And both of them mentioned that when I asked them about the most dangerous situations, of course, they had very interesting accounts and anecdotes, but both of them actually also mentioned that it's most dangerous when uh, you were exposed to a even an unorganized group of people in the mm. streets, because that could really easily turn. Mm. Is that related to what we're just talking about? Yeah, absolutely. This herd instinct is so primordial and so old in our brains. And you're absolutely right. It, it kicks into, it kicks us into that fight or flight mechanism and it usurps this sort of slower thinking prefrontal cortex delayed gratification reasoning part of our brain. And for good reason, because if someone's holding a gun on us, if we take time to think about it too much, that we might be dead, right? You want to have those immediate mechanisms. The problem is that that what the online medium can do is create that kind of herd mentality or that feeding frenzy, even in the absence of a real emergency. Hmm. 
Furthermore, we're not wired to be in that constant state of emergency, but we're all chronically overstimulated. And again, it's just more than our brains can handle. Hmm. And there's something else, this is not related to what we just spoke about, but the it is related to the interconnection of pleasure and pain. You mentioned chocolate, for example. So chocolate, you eat it and you have the surge of pleasure and then some pain. How about something like BDSM, the kink community, where a lot of people have experience great pleasure after pain. Pleasure after pain is exactly what you would expect from the pleasure pain balance. So remember when you press on the pain side with a painful stimulus of any sort, those neuroadaptation gremlins will hop on the pleasure side to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tipped and equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the after effect. That's the opponent process effect. And that's the the, the pleasure that comes after pain. But I think your point is a good one, which is to say that the balance is clearly an an oversimplification of the complexity of our human experience in response to all kinds of stimuli. It is possible to experience pleasure and pain simultaneously. So for example, spicy food is both pleasure and pain. Certain Certain types of sexual encounters can involve both pleasure and pain simultaneously. So it's not necessarily, you know, always about the opponent process effect, but I think in general, when we're thinking about how pleasure and pain are interrelated, it often follows that pattern. Mm, Fascinating. And if we get back to addictions, are all addictions bad or are there also healthy addictions? For example, a healthy diet, meditation, yoga, or breath work. So I think inherent in the word addiction is this idea that it's maladaptive, that it's gone just that little bit too far beyond, let's say, a passion or an interest. And again, we define addiction as the chronic compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self or others and or others. As long as you're not harming yourself and not harming other people, it's probably not an addiction. Um, Tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal, though, are also physiologic aspects that I think need to be taken into account, as well as the fact that when we're chasing dopamine, we often lose sight ourselves of the the consequences of that. So there may, in in fact, be consequences that we're not able to see, but that others could appreciate, which is why addiction can be such an insidious process. But I, I wouldn't say that any kind of investment of our libidinous energy, our creativity, our our time in something necessarily constitutes an addiction. The other thing that I would add too, is that we have redefined over time, what types of endeavors and substances are socially acceptable and what types are not. We happen to be living in a time where a kind of a workaholism is actually highly socially acceptable, but maybe in another culture at another time would be defined as an addiction to the extent that people spend time working or making money today. Right. Or an addiction to status symbols, especially in our Western cultures, having and displaying status symbols as indicators of our personal worth is, I I think, is highly addictive for so many people who actually damage their damage themselves, not only psychologically, spiritually, but they actually damage their lives, be it financially or in other aspects. That's interesting. I think 
You're absolutely right. We we live in a time of sort of narcissistic self-preoccupation and that hunt for other people's approval, which is related to human the need for and desire for human connection. But that desire for other people's approval can certainly be an addiction and one that's easily magnified by the internet and by social media and, and also by our culture. I, I agree with you that that striving for other people's, for accolades, for accomplishment, for other people's admiration. People can definitely get addicted to that. that. That often takes the form of love and sex addiction, but you're right. It can take the form of pursuing money or pursuing fame or, or what have you. And Anna, in a previous interview, you defined addiction as the things that we lie about. Can you tell us more about this, please? Yeah. So I, I didn't make that up. I don't know where I heard it. I might've heard it from a patient, but I think it's a nice shorthand for the kinds of behaviors that we should wonder about. If we're wondering if we're addicted to something, if we have a behavior that we're hiding from others, then that's something that we certainly need to scrutinize because people who become addicted will often talk about this double life where on the one hand, the most of the people in their lives see a certain person, certain patterns of behavior, but on the side, they're ingesting the substance or engaging in this behavior that other people don't know about that's furtive that they're lying about, that they expect spend a lot of time covering up. And usually when that's happening, it's because people know the behavior is in some ways wrong and or they're ashamed of it. And yet they can't stop it, even though um, they may want to, or even though they're ashamed of it. And that's a pretty good indicator that addiction is happening. And also <clears throat> leads into one of the recommendations I make for people who are trying to give up a substance or behavior whether they're just compulsively over-consuming it or whether they have a full-on addiction, is to um, practice radical honesty, which means trying to go through your whole day or your whole week or your whole month without telling a single lie. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important, I actually learned that from my patients, is that they taught me that in order to be successful in recovery and maintain their recovery, they are not able to lie about anything. And it's not just not lying about using, they can't lie about anything. Once they start lying about little things, it's, it's all off for them, which is really fascinating and maybe related to prefrontal cortical activation. So I talked before about the prefrontal cortex, which is that area of delayed gratification, storytelling, future planning are right behind our forehead. And it's also the area of brain that helps us be aware of what our pleasure pain balance is doing and what our reward and desire um, pathways are doing. And it turns out that telling the truth for all of us with or without addiction is really effortful and requires a kind of intentional self-monitoring because we're all natural liars about little things, especially to make ourselves look better. So in, in order to tell the truth about everything, we have to activate the prefrontal cortex. And it turns out that activating the prefrontal cortex may indeed decrease uh, our sort of impulse for immediate rewards. And there's some interesting neuroscience that suggests that's true. That is pretty mind-blowing, Anna. And again, if we look at ourselves culturally, you know, as children were raised to not lie. However, at the same time, we're taught to lie all the time, whether it's what we say or how we act and react, or even to the effect of children not being allowed to have healthy boundaries, go hug and kiss auntie, even if they don't feel like it or don't want it. <laughs> or the things are certain things, obviously, white lies is do you even recommend obviously, when you say radical honesty, I'm assuming that even the white lies 
are not to be used anymore. And those are the lies that most of us engage in the kinds of things like, oh, sorry, I'm late for the meeting. Traffic was bad. When the real reason that I'm late for the meeting, I want an extra five minutes to read the newspaper. It's very hard not to lie about those things for a couple of reasons. Number one, we figure we're not hurting anybody with that lie. And number two, none of us wants to admit that we're selfish, that we're disorganized, that we're lazy, all those things that all of us are at times. So those lies are are to patch over that aspect of our humanity. But in a kind of insidious way, those lies accumulate and, and really, I think, have a negative impact, both for ourselves, but also the people around us. One of the experiments I describe in the book is the Stanford marshmallow experiment, where kids, little kids were put in a room with a marshmallow on a plate. And they were told by the researcher, I'm going to leave the room and I'm going to come back in 15 minutes. If you can go the whole 15 minutes without eating that marshmallow, you will get a second marshmallow. And they basically looked at what were the correlates of which kids could do that and which kids couldn't, which kids had to eat the marshmallow before the 15 minutes were up. And then the strongest correlate was just age. The older the child between the ages of four or five and eight, the more likely they were able to wait. And that makes sense. As we age, prefrontal cortical function gets enhanced and we can delay gratification. But there were other correlates too, based on temperament. They also followed those kids long-term and found that the ones that could delay gratification usually had better school outcomes, maybe even better job outcomes lifelong. But an interesting twist on that experiment was that they divided the kids in two groups. And in one group, they, the researcher said, here's a bell. If you ring that bell, I'll come back before the 15 minutes is over. And they told both of the groups that. But in one of the groups, when the kids rang the bell, the researcher came back. And in the other group, when the kid rang the bell, the researcher didn't come back. So the researcher lied. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that in the groups where the researcher lied and didn't come back, those kids were much more likely to eat the marshmallow and not be able to wait the full 15 minutes. And and I think that's really um, just a useful paradigm to understand the harm of lying. Because when we lie to each other, but also especially to children, what we do is we tell them that the universe is not a reliable place, that it's a place where people are not going to do what they said they were going to do. And so this is a place where you need to be greedy and take, you know, what's yours right away and not delay gratification because you can't rely on people or things being there in the future. So people go into this kind of survival mode, even when survival isn't really at stake. And I think that's what I call the plenty mindset versus the scarcity mindset. And what's amazing about how we're living now in the United States is that many of us have a scarcity mindset even though we're surrounded by so many things, right? There's this sense of, I've got to get mine before somebody else does. And I think part of what contributes to that is the lying culture, the ways in which we're not holding ourselves or others accountable for the. That is so profound, Anna. Thank you for sharing these insights. I couldn't agree more. I think the, the lying culture is a big part of that. And also this fear culture, this constantly yeah. being in our lizard brains, because right. you know, both of this causes a, a this perception of lack versus right. abundance. And once we operate right. from this space of lack, this fear-based way of approaching life, seeing ourselves within the context of life. That's when everything goes downhill. Right. Yeah. We're operating from our lizard brain and chaos ensues. Yes. And when it's not even necessary, but then of course, once chaos ensues, then the world does become chaos. Yeah. Right. 
we feel like, oh, I was yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Look at we're looking currently just at the what's happening with the supply chains and people, right. you know, freaking out again. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And Anna. With regards to addiction, are we all vulnerable to addiction? Or is there, for example, you just mentioned what happens to kids when they're lied to. Uh, this is, of course, different from addiction. But is there a specific age or are there certain circumstances that make it more likely to become addicted? Yeah. So not everybody comes to the problem of addiction with an equal amount of vulnerability. Risk for addiction can broadly be divided into nature, nurture, and neighborhood. Nature refers to your genetic or inborn vulnerability to addiction. So if you have a biological parent or grandparent with alcohol addiction, you yourself are more likely uh, to become addicted to alcohol, even if raised outside of that alcoholic home. And that probably translates to other addictions as well. If you have a co-occurring mental illness, you're more likely to get addicted. Although the caveat there is oftentimes the addiction is causing the psychiatric symptoms and not the other way around. Although our own retrospectoscope makes it always seem like we're self-medicating, but very often it's the addiction itself that leads to those symptoms because again of the pleasure pain balance. Also early childhood trauma, unemployment, living in poverty, all of those things increase the risk of addiction. And then in terms of, and that's nurture. And then in terms of neighborhood, if you live in an environment with more access to addictive substances and behavior, you are more likely to get addicted to them. And that then really speaks to dopamine nation and where we are now. And if you think about the four properties that make something addictive, it's quantity, access, potency, and novelty. And we are living in a time of unprecedented access, unlimited quantity, technological innovation that's led to these uber potent formulations of almost everything. And then really infinite novelty, where we now can take two drugs and combine them together and add a little chemical moiety that makes it similar, but just a little bit different or a YouTube video or a TikTok video that's like the 500 we've, ever, we've seen, but it's new because they did this. So we are living in the age of addiction. And because of that novelty in particular, most of us are more likely to find an addictive drug, whereas two, three generations ago, we might not have. Um, in my case, for example, I, I'm really like tobacco, nicotine products, alcohol, caffeine, none of that is particularly reinforcing for me. What's reinforcing for me is human connection. Mm -hmm. And with the advent of these digital devices and easy access to things like romance novels or, or other human connections, I'm really vulnerable to getting connected, addicted to those types of things. Whereas hundred years ago, I, I probably wouldn't have struggled with that problem. This is really interesting. And so for people, for someone who, if we aren't addicted to anything yet, does that just mean we haven't found our drug of choice yet? Or we're not self-observant in a way that we need to be because almost everybody is compulsive over-consuming their smartphone. So if you feel like you're a person who just can't relate to the concept of addiction, then I recommend you put your smartphone away for 24 hours and see how it goes. <laughs> Because I suspect that most of us can attest to that being difficult. So true. And I found it really interesting what you mentioned, for example, about neighborhood and also nurture. So with regards to nurture, people who have experienced 
trauma, whether it's, you mentioned poverty or whether it's also abuse in any form. So of course, people who have been through these types of experiences can be very vulnerable to addiction. They also have a lot of times experience with anxiety or depression. And the conventional way to treat that is, for example, by certain medications that certainly can alleviate a lot of suffering. However, SSRIs, how ever in in the way you are ex have experienced and seen all of this in your career what would is there any other approach that you would recommend yeah when patients come to see me with anxiety and depression and they're also compulsively over consuming a behavior or a drug my first pass intervention is to ask them to eliminate that behavior or that drug before doing anything else And the reason for that is really just to test the hypothesis of whether or not the driving force behind their anxiety and depression is really too much dopamine. Is the bombardment of their pleasure side of their balance tipping them into this um, dopamine deficit state? And I find that about 80% of folks who are anxious and depressed who also have some form of addiction, if we can eliminate their addictive behavior for a month, 80% of those folks will come back feeling a lot better with no other intervention at all. And in fact, there, there's an experiment by Shuckett et al. I'm showing something very similar. He took adult males who were addicted to alcohol, abusing alcohol, and also met criteria for major depression. He put them on an inpatient psychiatric ward, offered no other treatment except that they didn't have access to alcohol for a month, and then reassessed them a month later and found that a month later, 80% of those individuals no longer met criteria for major depression. So just by removing alcohol, depression got better. Now, importantly, 20% depression persisted. So clearly there is a cohort of individuals who has a mental illness and that needs to be treated as well. I wouldn't ignore that. Mm -hmm. But what I found in my practice is that for people who are actively engaging in addictive behaviors, just getting those addictive behaviors under control first often alleviates many of the psychiatric symptoms that they come in seeking help for. Mm -hmm. So that's usually where, that's usually where I start. Great. And Anna, can you talk about the pain to treat pain or anxiety to treat anxiety concept, please? Yeah. So this is the hormesis concept. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And really it's this idea of instead of pressing on the pleasure side, what we're going to do is we're going to press a little bit on the pain side, because we know that mild to moderate noxious stimuli, although painful in the immediate moment, actually upregulate, get our body's own endogenous healing mechanisms to upregulate up in order to restore homeostasis. And there's lots of evidence that this is the case. For example, acupuncture may well work by causing pain uh, to the mi microfibers and Part of why we think that's true is because, again, it's painful in the moment, but the after effect can even be a kind of euphoria when people get acupuncture. But also if you pre-treat those individuals with naltrexone, an opioid receptor blocker, they ought, you will often block the, the treatment response of acupuncture. Likewise, interesting studies looking at giving naltrexone, an opioid receptor blocker, to patients with chronic pain, which on the face of it doesn't make any sense. But actually, if you think about, again, these pleasure pain pathways, what happens when we block our own opioid receptors is we're telling our bodies, oh, we need more opioids. So then our own opioid factories start to generate more opioids instead of taking opioids externally, which will drive our endogenous production down. We block opioid receptors 
to upregulate endogenous opioid production. So all kinds of things like that, using mild to moderate, painful or noxious stimuli to trick the body into upregulating its own endogenous healing mechanisms. That is really fascinating. And there's also some new treatments popping up everywhere, it seems now, for addiction, pain, anxiety, depression, and whether it's uh, top universities that are conducting studies with MDMA, psilocybin, and such, or, for example, in Brazil, iboga and ayahuasca are legal. And a lot of these substances seem to be very helpful in not only managing symptoms, but actually going to the root causes. And oftentimes, especially with something like ibogaine, the active compound in iboga, to actually eradicate addictions. Here in the US, it's we have the first psychedelic treatment um, when it's medically supervised and prescribed, it's completely legal via ketamine infusions, for example. What are What is your take on that, Anna? I think we're still in the infancy in terms of gathering data. I personally am skeptical that a one-time medication is going to have a lasting impact on a chronic relapsing and remitting disorder, especially a behavioral disorder that's as complex as addiction. I'm open to the idea that these kinds of, let's say, LSD, ketamine, ibogaine-like agents may be helpful in the proper setting, delivered in the proper context and the right mindset to sort of open up somebody's perspective and maybe motivate them to more actively pursue the behavioral interventions that I think are really at the core of changing addictive behaviors. But I'll tell you, there's a real potential public health danger. And that is, and I'm already seeing it in my patients who read about these types of substances as miracle cures and then get them on the black market and self-administer or do it together with friends and then do it repeatedly every weekend and then every day and then every hour. And I've seen that in my patients who have gotten black market ketamine, mm -hmm. um, patients who have used psychedelics, MDMA. And of course, that's a tragedy, right? And that's a real risk, especially in people with the disease of addiction. So mm -hmm. I think when we're looking at a mind altering substance to treat people who love to alter their minds and not be in themselves and escape themselves, which is a universal desire. I think we all want a, that sense of non-being, but for people who have a unique vulnerability to that, we have to be really careful about saying this is a miracle cure. Oh, I agree with you 100%, Anna. And I think there's a vast difference between what you just shared, people acquiring substances on the black market and then doing it on their own without somebody who can either medically or as a therapist guide them through or somebody who's very experienced helping people through these kinds of experiences. And also, I think culturally, we are used in the West to oftentimes seek uh, mind-altering experiences because we want to run away from ourselves. Because Cause we want to run away from the pain. I have personally also experienced, and I see there's a resurgence now where these, these altered states of minds are actually used to find and to reconnect to ourselves again, to face our pain, yeah. work through it. That's when I think there can be real benefits. However, it's a completely different mindset and setting than right. what you just described. For example, right. for myself, I've had a really transformative experience 
with ketamine, I've had lifelong anxiety and maladaptive behaviors and all kinds of stuff. And for me, it really helped me not only to alleviate symptoms, this was a few months ago, but it really reframed a lot of things and helped me to let go of certain emotionally traumatic childhood experiences that I'm now completely fine with. Now, of course, I did this in a medically supervised setting and uh, which I think is very different from, yeah. you know, what you hear when people go out to clubs and then they'll just say cat snort ketamine mm-hmm. or whatever they do. Thanks for sharing that anecdote. I, and I've heard that from enough people that I really respect that I believe it's true because that's what you experience. So I do think that there's important utility here, but we just need to be really careful about how we roll it out. Anna, there's one question I ask every guest. Are there certain practices that have positively informed your life, mentally, physically, or spiritually? Yeah, and I really believe in trying to maintain pleasure, a pleasure-pain balance by trying to avoid highly intoxicating substances or behaviors, or if I do engage, engaging infrequently and for special occasions and in moderation, and then intentionally avoiding, intentionally inviting challenging and painful things in my life, whether it's exercise or just forcing myself to do things that are hard. I think that's a practice that maintains a healthy and resilient pleasure pain balance. Fantastic advice and insight, Anna. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for making time for us today. And thank you for all the amazing work you put out there. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 